Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Greetings, everyone, and hello to the listeners in Saudi Arabia, in Hong Kong, and in Spain. Hola. Thank you for listening and tuning in, and also to the people who are listening at 4 a.m. Maybe it's a time difference thing, but like, big up yourselves for listening at 4 a.m., because... Don't know if I want to hear my voice at 4am. Um, today's show, we have Safe Derzi on the show. I mean, what a story. Um, he His portfolio is something upwards of one and a half million pounds. It's taken him eh, just under two years to get there. The passive income profit is about 10 grand a month. Yeah, 10 is a lovely round number. And it's what most of us kind of put down you know, in our kind of documents. He talks about breaking down your goals to get success. We also talk about one of his projects, which was an old brothel with a burnt out ground floor that he legally couldn't physically get into before auction, that he bought at auction. So kind of buying slightly blind here, that he converted and now rents out on a three year lease, no management, no voids, nothing to a housing association and brings in quite a nice amount of profit. Um, So he's got a really nice selection of deals from this, which is diversifying and kind of keeping incoming rent despite market conditions with the kind of social housing aspect. And then the high-end student HMOs, which you'll see if you look at his Facebook and Instagram pages, it's a really interesting story. And he has a really calm and collected way of handling things, which is a method we should apply to everything. If you haven't, subscribed or you haven't left a review and you're loving the podcast please do itunes podcast app facebook page post on my wall whatever it is let me know here we go safe welcome to the tej talks podcast hi tej thanks for having me no problem thanks for kind of approaching me and, and uh, asking to come on i had a I had a really good look at your website and your instagram and your branding and i really like it you know i think it's really refreshing to see more investors doing this and putting an emphasis on social media and having, you know, a nice aesthetic. And also your, your properties look really nice. Um, I also know about one of your properties in Doncaster, which used to be a brothel, which is going to be a really interesting story because you turned it around in, in four weeks, which, you know, once people see the pictures of this, they, they're going to be shocked. So like, let's start with, you know, briefly before property, what, like, who were you? What were you doing with your career and your life? Sure. Um, So I'm actually a pharmacist by trade, which is interesting because um, that's what led me into property. So I was sort of, you know, in the uh, in the nine to five, I guess you can say, you know, it it was a rat race, really, similar to how everyone else was in their corporate world. And then, you know, just wanted a way out. And um, this was two years in after my graduation. Um, I was actually in in a very good job. But, you know, I just thought that, you know, it was just getting very repetitive. So um, I wanted a way out and um, yeah, I left my job. Uh, everyone thought I was, you know, I was, I was crazy for doing so, um, but I did. And uh, I started up a company. So initially when we started up the company, um, I started up myself. Um, I bought my, I bought my uh, wife on board part-time as well. And um, we were just helping a lot of the pharmaceutical manufacturers in the UK to export their products abroad. So we were trying to get them sales uh, in effect. And um, that probably went on for around two years. Um, we did quite well with that, to be honest with you. And um, yeah, we made some money and decided to, you know, do the uh, sensible thing and invest in property. Mm. And what gave you the kind of, um, 
belief or bravery that you could quit a nine to five, you know, standard job, everyone's happy to start your own business in something which you hadn't necessarily done before. Obviously, it's similar, but like, you know, what what gave you that feeling that, you know what, I'm going to quit, I'm just going to do it, I'm going to make it work? I think it's just the the desire and the desire to be able to know that you can make more as well. Um, so I was adamant that, you know, I was worth more than I was working for per hour. Um, and I was just looking for a way to actually get out of it. Um, I was actually able to, to leave the job because I started the business on the side. So it was kind of, you know, I was building up as I was in the job. Um, I built up enough income, so I didn't actually replace my current salary, but I built up enough income to be able to get out of it and then slowly built up that business over sort of two years. Um, and then once I built up enough money over the two years, um, then I started investing into property. So yeah, it was a phased approach. Um, one thing I would say is, you know, I wouldn't encourage anyone just to leave their job without having any backup whatsoever. Um, I sort of phased it in and I think that's probably the sensible thing of doing. Okay. And what was the biggest challenge you faced going from employee to the boss to being self-employed? To be honest with you, I think the biggest challenge I had when I initially started the business, um, to cut the long story short, uh, my emails got hacked and um, I was supposed to be making a payment to one of the suppliers. So this was my probably my first ever, uh, not my first ever, sorry, no, my third order within the, uh, within the company. And it was quite a significant order. It was around about $55,000 order. So I was sending the money to America. Um, and at that point that I was trying to send the money to America, my email had already been hacked. So obviously whoever hacked my email had intercepted the emails and then they realized that, you know, at that point I was asking for their payment details, the, the company in America, the pharmaceutical company. So they had realized that they sent me their, so the hackers actually sent me their um, bank details. Um, I even ended up, you know, I, I do the, the usual thing of sort of sending a pound, making sure they received it. However, what I didn't do is I didn't call them. I sort of emailed them. They said, yeah, we received the pound. Please go ahead and, and send everything else. Um, I sent everything else. And, and basically, after probably three days, I didn't get an email back from the company. Uh, and that point, I called them and they said, you know, well, what money? Because we still haven't received it. Uh, and then I realized that, you know, something's happened here. Um, again, cut long story short, basically ended up losing around about $55,000. And um, yeah, I would say that was, that was quite a low point for me, you know, sort of leaving the job and, you know, where everyone else is sort of around you and um, telling you not to leave your job, you're, you know, you're being quite silly and then obviously going to, to losing the money. But I think the positives from that is um, determination, perseverance, and, you know, I just kept on going and kept on going. And um, it wasn't until the year after that. Um... Hmm. Wow. And then, so... <laughs> You know, with that kind of, I mean, that's that's a lot of money for anyone. Um, with that loss, you know, did you think, oh, you know what, forget it, I'm going to stop, or did you, or did it kind of get you down and you thought, you know what, I'm going to learn from this and and be better and keep going upwards? Well, no, I thought, you know, um, I thought let's keep going, and I think at that point, if I had quit, I would have gone back to being an employee, and I don't think I would have ever done anything after that. But what was interesting is a year after that, I got quite a significant order for around about, I think it was about £165,000. And um, interesting enough, I had made enough profit to cover all my losses that I made the previous year. <laughs> so I think that the moral of this story is, you know, if you keep going, if you keep persevering, 
you are always going to go up. Um, you will have blips along the way, but that's fine. It's just a blip. You've got to keep calm and you've got to keep motivated and just keep going. Solid advice. And then, so let's move into property now. So, and it's an asset. It's a, it's a sensible place to kind of put your money, which which is your your kind of thoughts at the time. So, like, tell me about your first deal and if you remember the kind of figures of it as well. Yeah, the first deal actually interesting was actually an off market deal. I didn't realize it at the time, um, but I was looking around. I was I was living in Manchester at the time. Uh, I was doing my training year, and um, I was just looking around for a two bed flat. Um, I found a two bed flat at the time. It was around about one hundred and ten thousand um, pound. But that one got sold. And I was actually speaking to the sales agent afterwards. And I was just saying, you know, I was really interested in that one. And she then came back to me. She said, well, I've got another woman who's got one in, in the same block and is interesting to sell. So I said, OK, let's uh, let's have a look at it. So that was even before they put it on the market and ended up buying that at 94,000. Wow. And why was it so much cheaper than the other one in the same block? Uh, the lady, I think she was a Chinese investor and she was just looking to go back to China. She didn't really need it anymore. Um, so she just wanted a quick sell, um, and and that's what we offered. We uh, we bought, you know, I bought her offer at the time, and um, I think she was happy with it at ninety four thousand. Hmm. And a lot of people say they don't like investing leasehold in flats; they want freehold. Or, but you know, flats, especially in a city like London, like Manchester, you know, there's a huge role that they play for like young professionals, right? So, what was your, I guess, uh, thought process behind? Let me get a flat first. I actually bought probably in one of the worst buildings in the best area. Um, so it was Salford Keys at the time. You know, it was, it was really on the up. There was a lot of these new builds going up in Salford Keys, probably, you know, between sort of 130 to 220,000 for a two bed. And I actually bought one of the worst properties in the worst blocks, but that's because I knew that it would catch up with the rest of the area. And um, interesting, I think it was 2018 that I went to refinance it. Um, and the value are actually, you know, they valued it up. So I went in for 125,000 and they said, no, it's worth 130,000. So looking back at it, um, I think I I put that at 80% mortgage. That's the only one I got at 80% uh, just because they were offering it at the time. Uh, So I managed to pull all my money out out of that one uh, after three years. So, you know, the capital appreciation was quite, quite large, but also on the flip side as well, we had a lot of um, rental increase as well over the, over the years. So I think, from 2015, I had it rented out at £600. I went all the way and now I'm having it rented out at £775. So it's quite a significant rental increase in line with the capital appreciation as well. Wow, that's a that's a cracking deal for your first one. And, and to get it off market without kind of knowing it, that's that's some good fortune. So, you know, obviously seeing that kind of money coming in every month, you know, kind of seeing the, you know, what property can give you. What did you then do next after that flat? So I moved to Lincoln after that, and um, Lincoln had quite a big student population. So when I was looking around in Lincoln, we were also looking at flats in Lincoln, but then I quickly started to realize leasehold probably wasn't for me, um, probably because you know I didn't really want to have the hassle of you know having to manage all the, uh, the ground rents and the service charge. And basically, it's just a lot more headache as well, trying to manage that and keep up to date with the payments on that. So I decided to go for something freehold. Um, and when I was looking, I found a, what, what is a four-bed HMO. Uh, so there was a company in Lincoln at the time who was a, a big student uh, letting company, and they actually ended up going bust. And um, I bought one of their properties from their portfolio that they were selling off. Wow. And what, what were the figures on that one? 
So that was a four bed HMO. Uh, I bought that at 150,000. Uh, that one pulls in around about 17,500 a year. That's a gross uh, rental income. I think net income on that is around about 13,000. But I think with, with student um, properties, they're quite steady. You know, I've got it rented out two years ahead. So, um, you know, there's a lot of demand for student accommodation in Lincoln, especially because we had Article 4 as well come in. So not only did that increase uh, the demand for student accommodation, also increased the value of these properties that had the right planning for HMOs. Mm, okay. So one flat, one HMO, you know, we're, we're kind of building up a, a nice bit of passive income here. Um, why don't we zoom out on what your portfolio looks like as of right now, which is January 2019? Sure. So currently we, we've got, um, so I've got with my wife around about eight properties ourselves. Uh, I've then got two other properties with my brother that I own. Um, and we've also got around about three properties uh, with joint ventures as well. So we've reached, we, we reached a stage where we ran out of money and that's why I started doing it with my brother. And then we ran out of money with my brother. So I started doing it with other joint ventures. Um, at this stage, uh, our portfolio looks around about 1.75 million. Um, equity wise, we're, we're not that highly geared. We're around about 50%. So we've got around about 900 grand uh, equity in the portfolio. Um, it cash flows a month around about 10,000. So that's net. Uh, gross is around about 15,000. Absolutely smashing. I think 10 is, is, a, is a nice number. You know, everyone, when they say, how much do you want to earn a month, you know, passively, it's kind of like 5, 10, 15, it always goes up. And 10 is the one I hear a lot, right? So how long has it taken you to go from, you know, zero passive income um, to having, you know, 10K profit a month? So 2015, uh, that was August 2015 when I bought the first flat. That was the first one. And then there was a slight gap between that. So the, the next one I bought was actually March 2017. So it was realistically, it was between March 2017 to date. So that's just under two years, am I right? So like how realistic is it for anyone to achieve the numbers you've just told me? in that time frame? I don't think it's impossible. Um, it is definitely realistic, but I think obviously you need to be really determined. You need to be motivated. You know, I, I read a lot. So I've, I've got a target this year of reading one book every week. That could be reading the book or that could be listening to it. But either way, I want to be able to consume one book a week. Um, you know, I'm very disciplined in, in how I approach things as well. Um, I try and network a lot and put myself out there. And I think what's really, really key in the property industry today is you've got to be open, you've got to be honest, and you've got to be transparent. Because I think people are starting to realize there's a lot of people that are trying to hide a lot of things. And I think if, um, if you are very open and, and transparent, people really understand that and actually it makes them trust you more. Um, so it's really, really key in the property industry today to be as open and transparent as possible. Mm. And so... Am I right in saying that you bought, you know, and you said about three JV properties. So most of your properties have been your own money from your businesses, from your savings, and then others have been via a JV. Is that right? Correct. So what made you, and this might be an obvious answer, but what made you use your own money? I know you had it and it was probably sitting in a bank wearing away, but what made you use your own money instead of getting investors on earlier to kind of grow even quicker i mean you grew bloody quick as it is but what um what made you rinse your own funds first 
I think, you know, when we look at it, if we're looking to work with joint venture funding, uh, I think it's key to be able to prove the point that you've done it yourself first and you've risked your own money. I would never want to risk someone else's money on a deal I haven't done before. So as we're growing now and we're going from, from you know, bigger, you know, bigger deals, basically, um, I would not want to do a bigger deal with a joint venture funding unless I've done it with my own first. And I think that's a really, really important point, you know, for, for other people to understand as well. So even if you can't buy the property, even if you did a rent to rent deal on a HMO, then it gives you the rights to be able to go out and seek joint venture funding to do a HMO, for example. I just don't think it's right to do a property or do a, a, a business model or a strategy in property if you haven't done it with your own funds first, because I can guarantee you there will be problems along the way. Um, and you would, you know, you'll be more motivated to solve it yourself first and then be able to prove the model before you went back to your joint venture partners and try to raise the finance that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, it can, it can be done without doing it yourself, but I think the the risk appetite that you've mentioned is, is, is probably safer. And I think as soon as you have even just one, like you said, it shows people, oh, you know, this, this, this guy, this girl, like they can do it. So like, let, let's talk money. Um, that's really interesting. Now, so obviously we've zoomed out on your portfolio. I, I do want to talk about um, the brothel as well. But before that, you know, apart from that one, was there a property in your portfolio that was an absolute headache and a nightmare and that had so many challenges or were they all quite smooth sailing? I think we, we've had lots of challenges along the way. Um, you know, the, the key is how to be able to manage and, and sort those challenges out and, and basically be able to, to do it with a calm head. Uh, because I think if you get emotionally attached to a decision, you're not going to make the right one. But if I take you to um, one of our joint venture deals that we were doing, um, you know, we, we were buying a property at auction and um, we, uh, we went ahead and bought the property uh, with our joint venture uh, partner. And basically, he put all the money down to buy the property. Um, it was two weeks after we exchanged contracts. He was getting a bridge through Precise. Um, two weeks after the, uh, the exchange of the contracts at auction, uh, Precise came back and basically, um, basically just didn't value the property. They valued it at zero pounds. Um, and they were saying, you know, there was a problem with the, um, with the roof. So the purlins of the roof had a defect. Um, which defies the, the, the you know, it, it really is, it defies the, uh, the need for a bridge. Um, but anyway, um, we, you know, we, we went ahead and um, we were looking at various options of what we can do. Now, Precise wanted us to, you know, get a structural engineer and get everything sorted and signed off all within two weeks, which was just not happening whatsoever. You know, we, uh, I called lots of different structural engineers at the time. They said, probably take around three weeks just to come out to have a look at it, first of all. So, um, you know, we, we tried not to panic. We tried to basically take a step back from the situation. And then um, one, of the, um, one of the guys I know, he does private bridging finance. Uh, he's a very old school guy. Um, you know, he gave me a decision basically the next day. Uh, I sent him all the details by email. He came back to me and said, yeah, we're happy with that. We'll go ahead and uh, we'll lend on that. So, again, it's just, you know, with a joint venture, you have to have skin in the game. Um, and you've got to make it as if it's your money as well, because otherwise you're not going to care about it. So you've got to make sure you solve those problems and you support your joint venture partners as much as possible. Wow. And, you know, something you, you said there at the end was this this old school geezer who, who kind of lends money as a bridger. Right. I don't know him. Neither does, you know, I don't know some of my listeners. Right. But, you know, him and he helped you out on this deal last minute and gave you a next day decision. Now, that highlights how important your network is, because 
you know him because you put yourself out there because you talk about things you attend events you're on facebook you're on instagram etc right so just for everyone listening you know your network you got to think oh i'm sitting in networking all the time doing all this stuff but actually you never know how many months later you might turn around and say i desperately need x hundreds of thousands of pounds for a deal that kind of is going wrong um and so on networking before we talk about your other um properties like two questions what's your main form of networking um and secondly where do you find investors i think networking is basically just you know trying to go to different events across the uk um obviously there, there is you know lots of different events at the moment but we, we try to go to different events in different sectors so you know we, we'll go to things like um development summits for example we'll, we'll go to um you know lots of different ones for example we'll go to service accommodation ones we'll go to ones um, specifically in hmo so we try to target different networking events in different sectors because then you have a, a wide variety of um of a network around you okay and then how did you, um, sorry, so, so that's how you find investors. Those are the kind of networks you go to. How much of your networking comes from digital networking, like social media? We get quite a lot. We're, we're finding that Instagram works quite well. Um, I think with Instagram, we try and, you know, we try and engage as much as possible. We try and provide valuable feedback. We, we comment quite a lot, but also we, we provide a lot of good content on there. So we try and share all the little hints and tips, you know, just to support people. Um, so we're getting a lot of people come through Instagram and, and are interested, you know, whether it's investing. Um, I'm also doing mentoring as well. So a lot of people are approaching me through Instagram now wanting to do the mentoring. Um, but, yeah, that's how you grow your network effectively. <clears throat> I love that. There's a, it's a guy called Dan from uh, Habiba who also is on the podcast. And I think he said he raised something like 100 grand from Instagram alone. And like that and what you've just said is so powerful because like, you know, Instagram traditionally it's not necessarily a business platform. I mean, it is now, but a lot of it is just looking at pictures of like Italy on holiday and cats and burgers and stuff. Right. But you don't think, Oh, hold on. Like there's a whole market out there. Um, and you know, when people see your Instagram, like they'll, they'll understand why people come because of the kind of quality and the tips you're delivering. And you know, content is King and queen. Um, so for people listening, like, get on Instagram, push helpful tips out there. You know, you may not be like, say, if you has this portfolio valued at this and has this cash flow, but you still have some value to add, right? So get on Instagram, people. Um, okay, and then let's then go jump back to your portfolio and your properties. Um, tell me about the brothel. Okay, so um, that was actually a property I, I saw online. Um, it was going through an auction at the time. Um the only issue with that property was we couldn't get access to have a look inside. And um, sometimes I really like those properties. Usually if there's a tenant or something like that, we would love to go in and try and see whether, you know, we can get access to it. But with this one, it was actually all empty. Um, it had a legal issue around it as well. So legally we couldn't get in it. I think it was basically repossessed. And um, I did a lot of due diligence behind it, to be honest with you. Um, it was bought for 145,000 back in 2007. It was on. It was going on the market at fifty thousand with a guy price of fifty thousand, basically in auction. Um, it already had planning, um, probably around about twenty years ago, to be split into three different flats. Um, I work with a national housing provider, um, that they're, they're basically a social housing provider, and I knew there was an appetite for them to take on, you know, these self-contained flats. So I had an initial discussion with them. Um, we, we basically got a pre-lease agreement in place for these three flats. 
Um, it went to auction um, and I bought it at an auction for £69,000. Um, I had a quick look at the property from the outside. I sent my builder around as well to have a look at it. From the outside, it seemed all okay. He had a look at the uh, the first floor, uh, sorry, the ground floor flat uh, from the window and it all looked okay. So um, yeah, we ended up buying it. After we exchanged contracts, I said to my builder, look, you know, we, we've exchanged contracts. Um, can you see if you can get into the property? You know, because we have exchanged now. So technically, we could be able to get into the property. Um, and, and I spoke to the agent and I kind of just let the agent know that we're basically going to go into the property. And he just said, I haven't heard anything, basically. So, you know, he, he let that one slide, which was pretty good. Um, the, the builder got access to it. So the basement, um, the basement flat had completely been burnt out. Uh, you know, there's needles everywhere. It was a, it was a real, real mess. Um, the top floor as well um, was, was basically an ex-brothel, uh, the top floor flat, and it had been raided, I think, by the police, you know, two or three times. So it was, it was a well-known building. Um, and when he got access inside, it, he said, look, you know, it, it looks pretty bad. And I said to him, OK, that's fine. Um, so we allowed a contingency of around about 50,000 for the refurb. I thought, you know, worst case, if we had to strip everything back, rewire it, replumb it, everything, we're going to be spending 50,000. So I still thought, you know, uh, there was still a lot of value in it. And um, yeah, you know, we, we had four weeks to complete on that on that project because the, the lease was supposed to be in place after four weeks from, from purchasing it, from completion. Um, you know, we had all sorts of issues with that. We had um, squatters coming in. Um, it was just, you know, they, they were trying to rip everything out basically while we're doing the refurb. So we had to try and get all the squatters out and then we put, Sort of metal door frames on and, and that prevented them from coming back but you know we really had to push the builders to try and really press on and get it done within four weeks and luckily we got it all sorted within four weeks and, and we got the lease in place wow i mean trying to to do a refurb while someone comes in behind you and strips it off is like you know shoveling snow while it's still snowing just gonna get you know done over and over again so like with that one, with the lease, why didn't you say to them, sorry, I, you know, let's not do four weeks, let's do eight? Or was that literally the only choice that they gave you? Yeah, they, they had a massive shortage at the time. Um, and, you know, they uh, they had a massive requirement for them. So it was a, it was a, it was an urgency from their side more than anything. Um, so we had to agree to it. And, um, you know, I, w- I wouldn't want to allow that to pass because it was quite a good agreement that we had, to be honest. Absolutely. And... Um, so you bought it at sixty nine thousand. So I'm guessing there was a little bit of interest in it, but not not too much, at the auction. Yeah, there was. I think um, the fact that people couldn't get inside it it put a lot of people off, which was quite good for me. Um, we ended up actually spending around thirty thousand pound on that. Um, so we were all in at around about a hundred thousand pound, and um, we had a three year lease on it with around about fifteen thousand. I think it's fifteen thousand five hundred a year net on that. So got no voids and, and no management on it as well and and that's epic um and you know i've i've spoken to some like charities about this some housing associations some councils and it it is a great scheme um especially because obviously you know looking at your other hmos which are high end and high spec you don't need to make it the same spec you don't need to furnish it you do it to a good standard that they're happy with um and you get this you know total hands off management thing and often they put in the agreement you know if, if we mess it up we'll pay x amount to fix it hopefully um so you know what i guess what made you look at that for this instead of i don't know making three studio apartments at, at, at kind of high end was it 
diversification or yeah um i think it was diversification to be honest with you um you know social housing is one of these business models and strategies that's quite recession proof so even in a recession you know you can have professional lets where the professionals might lose their jobs or you might end up having an empty property uh, whereas with these ones you know it's an actual national company they've been around for about 50 years so you know that you know they're not going to go bust any time and, and also they're getting the money from government as well so as long as government is always going to be paying which they always will be um, you're not going to have an issue so i want to diversify the portfolio somewhat because i didn't want to get to a stage where you know should something happen to the market i have all professional lets and basically it's putting all my eggs in one basket Mm. And, you know, I often hear from from investors getting builders to do anything in, in four months, let alone four weeks, is, is a push and, and hard work. How did you convince your builder to kind of, you know, bring in all his resources, get loads of manpower on site and just rush to get it done in four weeks? Did you pay him more? Do you have you known them for a long time? Like, How, how did you how did you work that? Yeah, I think that's um, that's one thing we did with the JCT contract. So I said to him from the beginning, look, you know, we are going to be pressed for time. We do have a pre-lease agreement in place and we're going to have to have the lease agreement in place four weeks, you know, post-completion. So I said to him, if you're willing to take the job, it's going to have to be on a four-week timescale. And now we, we've known this builder for probably the last couple of months, not not too long, but um, we've been giving him, um, probably gave him our last sort of two or three projects, to be honest with you. And, um, you know, at the time, he didn't really have much on. So we agreed to it. We signed a contract. So he was also bound by the contract. And obviously, he would have had a penalty if he didn't finish on the specific date. Uh, so that obviously incentivized him to, to finish it. And also, we were on site probably twice or three times a week trying to get everything done and, and make sure that we pushed all the tradesmen just to get it all done. So, um, you know, it was a combination of both being on top of them, but also them having uh, been tied in with an agreement as well. Oh, and, and how do you... Well, how did you find a good builder in the first place? I think you're going to go through a couple of bad builders before you find the good one. But um, the best thing is, you know, if you locally, you know, a couple of investors or developers, you ask them, you know, which builders are they using? You then go in, you speak to those builders, you see a couple of the previous projects they've done. And the best thing I always do is Google builders. Um, and, um, you know, once you Google a builder, you start to see a lot about the builder as well. Um, you know, just in case there's any red flags. But in general, um, you, you can kind of tell a builder from the characteristics. Now, a good friend of mine always used to say, you know, that there's a condition that people always get. It's called builderitis. You're always, <laughs> you're never going to have the best builder in the world. You know, builders are always builders. But if you pay your builders on time, if you keep giving them work, they're always going to be happy and they're always going to be coming back for more as well and, and doing everything correctly. Wow. And when it comes to, I guess, you know, what you're doing next, you've got a nice portfolio, you've got good cash flow. What is like happening next? What's in the pipeline? Are you now sourcing things? Are you going to land? What are you looking at? Yeah, so I think um, you know we, we've got to look at the time we're spending on a lot of these um, a lot of these projects, and I think we need to be able to scale up. And in order to scale up, we can use the same amount of time, but on bigger projects and make a considerably more um, money, basically. So we're looking at bits of land now where we put an option agreements on them. Um, we're, we're also just in general looking to basically uh, develop a portfolio. So we're going to build to rent. And, and I think that's probably going to be the, the way forward for us, you know, on PRS schemes. Wow. Okay. And, you know, so, so the area you invest in, which is Lincoln, right? Yeah. How, you know, some people are going to say, 
oh, you know, Safe lives in Lincoln. There's loads of like derelict buildings and land and it's, you know, it, it's a good place to invest, which it may be. But, you know, when people say, oh, I live in this town or that town and, you know, oh, there's just there's not much here. And, oh, you know, Safe's got the best town. And, you know, when they say about other people, what is your sort of, I guess, response to that? And and do you believe that anyone can be successful in property no matter where they're based? I do. Uh, I genuinely do. I just think um, rather than just trying to pick the strategy first, have a look at your local area. There's always going to be a strategy and tools because the strategy and tools are two separate things and, and people need to quickly realize that. And um, you can always use a tool or a strategy within your area. Um, I think people need to get a lot of education before they do that, though, um, because there's a lot of things that they won't know. But if they got the, educate, the right education, had a look at their area, I can guarantee them that they're going to find a strategy that works for them. Now, the other way is as well, um, you know, you can always look to partner up with someone in an area where you're offering some resources and they're offering the other types of resources. So when I always look at it, resources are, are, are four key fundamental ones are money, time, knowledge and experience. And as long as one of the partners is bringing one or more on board and the other one is bringing one or more on board, then that's a joint venture partner. Um, so I, I, gen I genuinely do think if you joint venture together with someone in a good area and someone in a more expensive area that might not be able to, to afford something locally, I think that'll be um, quite a good way of doing it. Mm, no, that makes absolute sense. And you touched on education there. Did you have any like formal education before you kind of went into property or, or do you still currently? To be honest with you, I, I didn't. Um, looking back at it now, um, I, I didn't get any education. But one thing I did do um, is after that, well, I learned a lot from it. You know, I learned a lot from the first property. But when I bought my second property, I started to, to read a lot through online forums, through Facebook. Um, I started to read a lot as well. Um, and, and, you know, it was more attending the networking events rather than attending courses specifically. Um, now, probably within the last year, I've been to, you know, we, me and my brother went to one course, basically. It was a built-to-rent course we went to. I think going forward, we will go to more courses, but we'll be very, very selective with the type of courses that we choose. Um, I think for us, it's about the material that we get in it, as well as the network you can build uh, going to these courses as well. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it can be a minefield with the number of different courses out there, different promises of financial freedom in, in three months with deal packaging, blah, blah, blah. It's It can be very tough. And so, Let's delve a little bit deeper. You're going to be very selective. Like, what would you advise people who are new or who are experienced in property that they should look for or they should, um, you know, what is your selective criteria? I think that would help everyone a lot. Yeah, I think, you know, it, yes, uh, a lot of these courses are going to sell you the dream a bit. However, what they're trying to do is trying to motivate you in a way. Um, one thing I would say is, you know, you've got to know which courses you're going to, who's actually conducting these courses as well. So that's really, really important. Now, the one thing I'll say is when you go into a course, you've always got to ask questions, you've always got to challenge people. A lot of what happens is in these courses, people will give you information, but they won't fill in the details in between this information. And a lot of people will get motivated and go home and, and try lots of different things, but it won't come out with a, with a specific uh, result. And you know that's why a lot of people can get frustrated by these courses. Now, one thing I would say is, if you ask the right questions while you're at the course and try and connect the dots between the bits of information they're giving you, I think that's going to help you get more value out of these courses 
Um, it could be that, you know, that the people providing the courses, they're not doing it on purpose. It could just be that they haven't connected the dots for you specifically. So one thing I would say is if you're going to go to a course, network with as many people as you can, uh, try and understand as much as you can before you go to the course about that specific topic and try and ask as many questions as you can. Solid, solid advice. And then to jump back to the area you invested in, Lincoln, what, and this is a very broad question, so feel free to answer it as specifically or as widely as you like, but what are your thoughts on Lincoln as an area to invest in? I think Lincoln's a great area. Um, Lincoln historically is one of these places where there's very, very limited bits of land. And so the property prices, you know, they crept up quite a bit over the last coming years. I think um, the East Midlands last year was probably one of the best performing, um, you know, regions in, in the UK. Um, we've had really, really solid uh, growth and performance of property prices as well. And the, um, the rental demand just keeps going up and up, um, partially because our university, it just keeps on growing and growing. Now, um, there is very limited properties in Lincoln. So what's happening is, you know, a lot of these houses got changed into HMOs, um, but there's not much residential properties as well available. Uh, and there's not much land to build on either. So um, I think Lincoln's one of these cities that's really, really growing very quickly. Um, and, um, you know, you, you've got the rental income as well with it. So, yeah, it's a great area uh, to invest in, definitely. Awesome. And, um, you know, you sound like a very cool, calm and collected person by everything you've said and by just how you come across. Now, you're obviously reading a lot, so I'm kind of connecting the dots here. Now, tell me how important your mindset has been to your success and obviously therefore how important it will be to everyone else's success. And what's, I don't know, what's maybe given you such a strong mindset? Is it a book, podcast? Is it, you know, whatever? Yeah, I think um, one of my idols is Warren Buffett. You know, um, I, I highly rate the guy and I think a lot of his principles that he applies to his stock trading, you can also apply into property. Now, one of the best principles that's always resonated with me is, you know, never get emotionally involved in a decision or never get emotionally involved in, in anything, really. And, um, you know, when you involve emotion in anything, it really, really skews the way you, you, you make your decisions. Now, when you're looking at property, if you get emotionally involved in a property, that can make you a motivated buyer, for example. And that's probably one of the worst things you can ever be, which is a motivated buyer. So, you know, I always read and, and take little bits of, of nuggets of information from lots of different resources, from podcasts, from books, um, you know, from meeting people as well, because I've got a lot of network of really, really high profile people around me that, you know, from, from my point of view, they're very humble people. Yes, they, they probably have quite big portfolios, but they're very humble. So they always share lots of bits of information. Um, and it's trying to take lots of bits of information from them and apply it in your everyday to day investing and developing. Hmm. Okay, cool. And um, what is an app or resource or bit of technology that you know you can't live without? Asana. I definitely can't live without Asana. You know, um, it's just it helps connect people remotely. And you know, a lot of what we do, a, a lot of the people in our team are remote as well. Um, it's a time-based task management tool as well. So you can put a time and a date on when you want something done. You can assign it to someone specifically. Um, and it just really helps to keep all information in one place. Okay, love it. Asana is pretty cool. I've, I've used it before and I do use it. Now, when it comes to Asana, which is obviously task management, there's, I guess, a naturally the natural question that comes after is talking about goals. Now, 
you know, property and business, everyone is always like, set your goals, you know, 10x them, 5x them, whatever it is, you know, have have these goals that are achievable, but obviously, you know, crazily unrealistic at the same time to kind of push yourself. What are your thoughts on goal setting and any advice to people who are struggling to set goals? Yeah, I think, you know, before you set goals, you need to sit down and figure out what your values are, because I think values are really, really important. You know, some people, you know, they can come to you and say, my goal is to make, you know, £100,000 per year, for example. But that really depends because, you know, what, what is it that you value? Is it the, the fact that you value freedom? Is it the fact that you value time? Is it the fact that you value material ob- objects? So it really, really does depend. And I think even for myself, I was confused at the beginning. I thought I wanted time. Uh, as time went on, I didn't want any more time. I just wanted freedom. So freedom of choice is what I wanted. Um, I think it's really, really good to break everything down as well. So this is one thing I do with all my mentees. We, we break it down. So for example, you know, we look at you know, what is financial stability to you? What is financial security to you? What is financial freedom? Because I think a lot of the people, you know, when they think of financial freedom, they just give you a, a, a number from thin air. But then when you break it down for them and you say to them, you know, um, you know, X, Y, and Z, this is what you actually need to become financially free. They start to think, okay, now I've got an actual tangible goal that I can start working towards and it doesn't feel like it's so big. So I think when you start breaking down little goals, um, you know, goals in, into little goals and, and basically creating little habits out of them as well, it's all about creating habits um, in order to get to your goals. I think that's where you start to become successful. I love that. I love that. Um, absolutely. Deconstructing those goals backwards, making them into habits, daily steps, things to get there. It makes it so much easier. And I've personally experienced that with with setting big goals and, you know, they can seem unachievable and, and too far away. But yeah, breaking it down really shows you also the power of compounding, right? Um, amazing. So um, when it comes to uh, kind of, you said freedom, what, what does freedom mean to you and I guess what has property allowed you to now do with your time so obviously you've got the passive income you've got more time are you what are you doing with your time are you parachuting out of planes are you making cheese at home like what what are you doing interesting I'm actually working more um I think (laughs) one one thing I realized is you know I didn't go into property thinking oh I love doing property and but I, I slowly start to realize I actually have a massive passion for property so even if you took away all the money element of property, I would still do property because it genuinely, genuinely is my passion. Now, um, you know, there's certain bits of it I don't like, but there's a lot of things in property that I do like. For example, you know, being creative and structuring a deal, that's probably one of the best things that I would like in property. The other thing is trying to find a deal and, and you know, doing all the negotiation behind it. That's something that, you know, I find is, is really, really key to property investing in general is the negotiation side of things. Um, so yeah, for you know, for me, that is what's really, really important. Amazing! I love that passion. Now, before we go into the quick fire round, which is the end of the podcast, um, I would like to know what your Instagram, Facebook, and website details are, so that everyone can go and look at all the wonderful homes and interiors and advice that you give out. Sure. So it's uh, SDGB Properties. That's on Instagram and Facebook. Amazing. Go and follow Safe and look at all the interiors he's done and all the tips he shares. They will be very, very useful. So let's go to the quick fire round. Right. What are your top three tips for people who are new in property investment? Get educated. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, spending a lot of money. You can spend a little bit of money on books and, and even, you know, uh, free podcasts. 
So that's a really, really important tip. What's your favorite podcast? TED Talks. Good, good answer. Next one. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> my, uh, my second bit of advice is do a lot of due diligence around what you're investing in before you invest in it. And, you know, you're never going to ever hurt someone by asking questions. Ask as many questions as you can. And, you know, try and get the right people around you in order to ask them those questions. The third thing will be um, try and discover, you know, what your values are and try and align it with property. You know, so why are you doing property? And I'm sure there's going to be a connection between your values and property. But if you don't discover that, you're going to be doing it for the wrong reasons. Good. Find your why. Very important. Um, and then what are the biggest three mistakes that you've made in property? Um, probably, you know, on, um, on my second property, I was probably a motivated buyer, to be honest with you. So, you know, I, I'll try not to be a motivated buyer at all anymore. But yeah, don't be a motivated buyer. Um, that's my first mistake that I did. I was a motivated buyer. Um, the second mistake I did was um, trusting builders as well at the early stages. So at the early stages of my property investing, you know, we, we trusted builders and basically that just will never get done correctly if you trust a builder. Uh, third mistake I did was um, probably jumping in with two feet in a specific strategy without testing it first. So in the early stages, you know, um, we, we didn't test HMOs. We just jumped in with two feet and we did lots of them in, in one go. But I probably, looking back at it, would have wanted to go in with one, test it out, and then go go in and, and scale up from there. Makes sense. And because you read a lot of books, I'm going to change this one slightly. What are your, you know, your top three favorite books? And it's going to be a tough question, especially if you read as much as you do. But tell me. Yeah. Um, how to influence friends and um, oh, sorry, how to influence people and, and um, uh, how to win friends, and influence people. That's the one. Uh, the <laughs> sorry, the second one is um, basically think and grow rich, and um, the third one is money by Rob Moore. Actually, yeah, awesome. I have read all of them, I think, and money by Rob Moore is awesome. And Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People is just it's like a um, a guide to life. Like even if you don't want to have your own business, you don't want to do anything. You just like it's just a really nice guide on how to live life well as weird as that sounds and it's so easy to read as well um you can read it pretty quickly and take in all the details um amazing safe this brings us to the end of the test talks podcast this has been fantastic there's a lot of knowledge you've shared i really like your approach i can tell that you 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 handle things calmly maybe even in a stoic manner and i think that's something that everyone should all you know apply to business career life relations whatever it is because it will really help you get ahead just like, you know, Warren Buffett did and, and just like you are. So yeah, all that's left is to say thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Tej. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.